Praise God. Well, good morning, Grace Point family. How are we? It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be in the presence of God. Uh, here at Grace Point, we say we want to encounter God, and we do that in worship. I pray you sense this presence this morning as we worshiped him. Amen. Um, it's a blessing to be with you uh, this morning. I spent Friday evening and all day yesterday upstate with about 50 men from our church, and uh, it was a blessing to get away. Um, today, they're closing out their time. They're still up there closing out their time with testimonies, with worship, with a, a time of communion. And uh, as much as I wanted to stay there, I felt like it was important that I come back this morning and continue to teach in this series that we began uh, all the way back in January, right? Can you remember? We've been here for a little while, um, but we're journeying through the book of Acts, and we're taking it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and I hope this has been a blessing to you as we unpack the Word of God um, in this way. Let me pray for us before we get into the Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word, Lord God. We thank you today that it is living and active. We thank you, Lord God, that you desire to speak to your people through your Word. And so we ask in this moment that you would silence any distraction, that you allow our hearts to be focused on you, even as we sang this morning, Lord Jesus, we want you and we know that we find you in the pages of Scripture. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, you'd do something in this moment to reveal more of yourself to us, to change us and to mark us. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was talking this week with, uh, with an older uh, Jewish gentleman, and he knew that I was a pastor and so he said, Pastor, what's the message about this week? And what, what scripture are you looking at this week? And I told him, we're going to be in, in the book of Acts. And he said, Acts? You mean like an like a axe, right? He said, A-X? No, I said A-C-T-S, Acts. It gives us the, the history of the early church and how the early church started in Jerusalem, in the temple, right? And he said to me, I don't really care about the history of the early church. What book are you teaching from? You got five to choose from. Right, of course, he's referring to the Torah, right? Which of those five books from the Torah are you teaching from? Because that is what the Jewish people understand as really the core of the inspired word of God. Now, in all fairness, I could have told them we'll be teaching on talking about the Torah today because that is where the message that is preached by Stephen in Acts chapter 7 goes, okay? I've said it before, but it bears repeating that the early apostles and the disciples did not see themselves as walking away from Judaism when they made a decision to follow Christ, right? They, they did not see this as, as some kind of great conversion. Again, if you ask Peter, Peter, why did you walk away from your Judaism? He would probably look at you like you're crazy, right? Because the early church did not see themselves as leaving Judaism, but rather fulfilled in their Judaism because of their faith in Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Acts chapter 7 gives us really the history of the Jewish people in one of the greatest sermons that was ever preached. And as great a sermon as this was, Stephen, who gives this sermon, he doesn't get any applause from the audience. He doesn't have anyone tell him that was, that was a great message. Instead, he's put to death for what he preaches that day. And so we're going to look at that in just a moment. But first, I want to remind you this morning who Stephen is. He was one of those who was chosen by the people to step into a place of leadership, okay, to help in the distribution of funds to the widows. In Acts chapter 6, he's described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And because Peter was willing to step in and willing to serve in the early church, it freed up the apostles to continue to teach and to preach 
the doctrine, okay? And, and, and so the word, we see this, that it continues to increase and the number of disciples multiplies. There's another description of Stephen in verse 8. It says he was full of grace and power. These are some amazing descriptions of this man of God. Fill these in. He, we understand this. He's full of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of grace. And he's full of power. Can I just say grace is a powerful witness all by itself, but when you combine that with the Spirit's power to do wonders and miracles, right, it's not surprising that opposition soon grew and came against Stephen. You see, at this point in the the church's history, it's not only the apostles that are doing miracles, but here's now a deacon. Here's one who's serving the widows in the church, and he's doing miracles as well. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, we talked about how Stephen was a Hellenist, right? He was a a Jew who was likely raised outside of Jerusalem. He spoke Greek, and he read from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. And it's likely that he was probably reaching out to some of those in the synagogue that he used to worship at. And I don't know if they were offended that he would kind of break off his connection with them, that he would become a part of this this Jesus movement, if you will. But we see there again in Acts chapter 6 that they try to argue with Stephen and what he's teaching. Stephen understands the teaching of the apostles, and now he's taking that teaching and he's sharing it with others, right? And Acts 6.10 tells us that he spoke with such wisdom and, and the Spirit of God that those in the synagogue could not withstand what he's speaking. Understand this. When the Holy Spirit gives us words to speak, the result is both wisdom as well as a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. Understand, when the Holy Spirit gives us words, it's not just wisdom that flows through us, but it is a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.4. He said, and my speech and my message, when I came to you, they were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And so here they are. They can't argue against Stephen, and so they say, well, we can't argue against him. We can't defeat or attack what he's saying, right? And so they take another plan, and they begin to attack the man himself. Can I just say it's not unusual that those who will not receive the gospel message become enemies of it? Like instead of just moving on and saying, well, that's what you believe, Stephen, they begin to attack him as the messenger. And so they begin to instigate some men to speak falsely about Stephen, And they tell them to say this, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, that's a lie. That's an outright lie, right? And because of this lie, Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin. He's brought before, again, this religious council. Here they are again. And Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin. They're hearing the same charges that they used against Jesus himself. And as he's standing before the council, they set up false witnesses who tell more lies. They say, this man never ceases to speak against this holy place. He's speaking against the temple, they say, and he's speaking against the law. And so here are the charges. They're very important. Write these down. They say he blasphemed against God, against Moses, against the temple, and against the law. Okay, for a Jewish man, these accusations couldn't be any worse. They're saying, man, this guy Stephen... He spoke out against everything that's important to us as Jews, everything that we value as Jews. And, and verse 15 of chapter 6 tells us that everyone in the council is looking, and they saw that his face was like the face 
of an angel. Now, I don't know about you, but when I am falsely accused, my face does not look like the face of an angel, right? You with me, right? That's generally not the way that we respond. But it's interesting because Solomon wrote this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says this, that the wisdom of a man causes his face to shine. That could be why Stephen's face is shining in this moment. But I also think that Stephen had enough wisdom to know that he was about to give his life in service to Jesus. Because Stephen was so bold that he could not pass up an opportunity like this to tell the council and and to tell anybody else who was listening the entire message of the gospel. Some of us, we pray for opportunities and they're they're right before us. Here's Stephen, and here's an opportunity. It's a a great opportunity, but he also knows this. If he speaks up and he tells the truth, he's likely gonna end up dead, right? That's where the council's at at this point. It's almost like he knows in this moment he's got one more opportunity to serve his master before he goes to meet him face to face. And and so the high priest, a man by the name of Caiaphas, the same man who brought Jesus to Pilate, he asked this question. He says to Stephen, are these things so? Are these things that they're saying about you, are these things so? In verse, verse 2, uh, chapter 7, begins Stephen's sermon, which is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's the second longest sermon in the Bible. He begins by saying this, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. Now let me stop right there. Notice how Stephen addresses his fellow Jews. He addresses them as brothers, the same way that Peter had done. And remember the first thing that he says here, he says, the glory of God appeared to our our father Abraham. Remember, the first accusation is that he blasphemed God. Now he's saying, no, no, I believe in the glory of God. It's interesting because this passage begins with the glory of God and it ends with the glory of God. Stephen speaks of the glory of God and at the end we see the glory of God in his life. Let me say this, as, as long as your life is declaring the glory of God, you will see the glory of God. That's what we see here in Stephen's life. But that first accusation, he blasphemed God. He says, no, I believe in the glory of God. And through this message, Stephen is going to systematically counter all the false accusations that came against him. And, And it's amazing the way the Holy Spirit speaks through him. Because as far as we know, he didn't have any message prep time, okay? Stephen wasn't speaking from notes on an iPad like I'm speaking this morning, right? All of this that he, that he preaches that day, all of this that he speaks that day is inspired by the Holy Spirit in that moment. Makes, makes me think that sometimes we just need to open our mouths and trust the Holy Spirit to speak, amen? And so he begins recounting the Jews' history, and he says, I'm going to take you guys all the way back to Abraham. Throughout this entire defense, Steve is, is going to show very clearly He's not a blasphemer, that he, but that he believes the scriptures that show that the glory of God appeared at other places and other times and is not limited to the temple. This is one of several examples that he's going to give to show the council that they should have expected God to meet with them in a very manifest way. Look at that next verse. He, he goes on to say this. He says, the glory of God appeared to Abraham and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, 
who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. God makes a promise to Abraham that he would be a great nation, that he would give his descendants all of the land in which Abraham was now camped. There were only two big issues for Abraham, okay? He didn't have a child at that time to inherit the promise. And God had warned that his descendants would live for 400 years as slaves before they actually came into the promised land. But here's the promise. The time will come when God will judge the nation that oppresses them and they will come to and worship God in the land given to Abraham. By the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Stephen begins to weave these Old Testament accounts together with such amazing fluidity. He quotes many times from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, again, the Septuagint, right? And so we know he studied the Bible. We know that he's, he's actually memorized portions of Scripture. Church, we are called to always be ready to give an account for our faith to give a defense for our faith. The Greek word there is apologia, right? It's where we get the word apologetics from, okay? And that doesn't mean you apologize. I'm sorry I follow Jesus. That's not what it's talking about, right? It is a word for a defense for our faith. Why do we believe what we believe? I wonder how we would do if we had to give a defense like Stephen. Verse 8 says, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. He gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler of Egypt and over all his household. God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants, and the sign of the covenant was circumcision. Abraham's great-grandchildren were the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, but these fathers of the faith were so jealous of their brother Joseph that they sold him into slavery. Now, look what it says there in verse 8. It says, but God, but God. I I love those words (laughs) because they always speak of the grace of God, amen? Amen. They speak of of his steadfast love, his faithfulness, even though this took place, but God was with Joseph and he gave him favor and he he gave him wisdom. That statement can cause you to ask, why is God with some and not with others, right? I, I believe in this situation it's because Joseph acted on the grace that God gave to him and he he lived a godly life in communion with God. Even when he was wrong, he refused to be bitter. And so he continued to honor those in authority. I I love the story of Joseph because all throughout his life, you can't find a negative thing about him, right? You can look, but you can't find a negative thing about him. And understand this, the sovereignty of God in the circumstances of life continued to exalt Joseph. The sovereignty of God in the circumstances of life continued to exalt Joseph. He gets to the, one of the highest positions in the land so that he could save his father and his brothers, and so the promise of God could be fulfilled in the future. Now look at verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. He sent out Joseph's brothers. Go find out what's going on, right? And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 person in all. He says, bring the whole family to Egypt. We're going to take care of you, right? 
the entire family survives through the famine, through God's presence in Joseph's life, and because of God's faithfulness to a promise that he had given many years before to Abraham. Now, we know this about Joseph. He is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ, okay? Because even though he was cast down, God exalted him to a high place, amen? But, But I want you to notice something else in this text. It says here that his fathers and brothers did not recognize him on their first visit. It wasn't until their second visit that Joseph made himself known. In the same way, can I just say this? Many did not recognize Jesus Christ on his first visit. Certainly this council did not recognize who he was. But when he returns in glory, when Jesus comes back for the second time, Scripture says every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he comes a second time, everyone's going to know who he is. Verse 15 says, And Jacob went down into Egypt, and, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Joseph's father, Jacob, died in Egypt, but he believed the promise given to Abraham and to his father Isaac and to him personally. And so Joseph promised to bury his bones in Shechem alongside Abraham. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and he forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Remember, there was a promise that Abraham's people would be enslaved for 400 years And when those 400 years were nearly over, God's people had grown so large in Egypt, right, that Pharaoh begins to be afraid. He says, man, if these guys get together with our enemies, they can overthrow us, right? And so he gives an order that all Hebrew newborn boys be drowned in the river. This is right at the time that Moses, the deliverer, is being raised up to fulfill the promises of God. Now, you may ask, why in the world is Stephen going back, and he's going over all of this history? I mean, he's been accused of some, some very specific things. Why does he just come back and, w- against those accusations? But he goes through and he talks about the history of his people because he wants this council to understand that not only is he not a blasphemer of the law, but rather he understands the story correctly. And so the examples that he continues to use begin to insinuate that the Sanhedrin, these religious rulers, missed the glory of God in the Messiah just the way their forefathers rejected Joseph and Moses and rebelled against the manifestations of God in the past. You see, at this point in time, as Stephen's speaking, the Jews are are in a very similar situation to the ones they had been in in Egypt, right? At this time, Rome is occupying the land. At this time, legalism has drained much of the life out of their religion. The deliverer had come, but just like their forefathers, they rejected him because they couldn't see the end results. These rulers lacked the faith in the same way their forefathers did. You know, there are some that ask the question, well, if Jesus was really the Messiah, I mean, if he was the Jewish Messiah, wouldn't the Jewish people have recognized him? I mean, wouldn't these teachers of the law seen him for who he is, right? But Stephen is setting up this pattern here where he says, you know what, you guys always reject those chosen by God. And so the fact that Jesus was rejected actually proves that he was sent by God. And now here is 
Stephen, (laughs) sent by God, and he realizes as he preaches, I'm probably going to be rejected as well. Because the forefathers of the faith rejected their brother Joseph. They tried to kill him. You rejected Jesus, and you put him to death. And then he begins to talk about Moses. And I love the story of Moses. Moses' life is amazing. It's even better in the pages of Scripture than it is in the Prince of Egypt, okay? you got to read it here. It's even better, okay? And Moses' life is amazing because if you look at it, you can divide it up into three 40-year segments, okay? Three 40-year segments. He spends 40 years in the courts of Pharaoh, 40 years being trained and, and, and being built up into this great leader. And then he spends his next 40 years on the backside of the desert. And it's in that place where all of his worldly wisdom is broken down, so much so that when God meets Moses in the desert, he meets him in a burning bush, right? He, he calls him into the next 40 years of his life. Moses says, I, I, God, God, I don't speak so good, right? Like, that's how broken he is. I, I, I can't even speak well. But the last 40 years of Moses' life, God raises him up, and he uses him as a, as a great leader among his people. And, and so we understand that the people of God rejected Joseph out of jealousy, and they rejected Moses when they didn't get the immediate results they expected. They they rejected Moses on the wilderness journey because it wasn't easy, and and Stephen is basically saying, as he stands before this council, he's saying, man, nothing has changed. You always reject those sent by God. You, You killed the prophets, and Jesus came, and you've rejected him as well. Verse 20, at this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. Stephen goes on to tell the story of Moses and how the young boys were thrown into the Nile as Pharaoh feared that Israel's becoming too powerful, that the Jewish people were becoming too powerful. And I I love the description of Moses given in this verse. It says he was beautiful in God's sight. This is taken right out of the Torah. And who wrote the Torah? Moses, right? So Moses says this about himself. I was a beautiful baby. (laughs) I was a good-looking baby, right? It's kind of like where John says, and the other disciple beat Peter to the tomb, right? It's bragging on myself a little bit, right? Verse 21, and when he was exposed, this is talking about Moses, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him in as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Look at that. That Right here, he's mighty in his words and deeds. Again, On the other side of 40 years in the desert, he can't even speak well. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. It was at the age of 40 years old that Moses decided Uh, to visit this race of people from which he was born. And and he sees an Egyptian abusing a Hebrew, and and so he avenges the oppressed man by killing the Egyptian. And and in that moment, I, I believe Moses made a mistake that's common to many of us. It's that of assuming that others will understand our motives, right? Sometimes we do something we think everybody's gonna understand our motives. Moses assumed that people would credit God for for raising them up to help them. But look what happens, verse 26. And on the following day, he appeared to them, and as they were quarreling and and tried to reconcile, saying, men, you're brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
So Moses comes upon two Hebrews who are quarreling, and the one who's in the wrong says, man, who made you judge? Moses, who made you ruler and judge? He asked Moses if Moses is going to kill him like he killed the Egyptian because apparently the word had spread about what Moses did. And so here's God's people. Instead of welcoming Moses as a deliverer, they question his motives. Because Moses was trying to accomplish God's desires, but he was doing it man's way. Listen, when we try to do God's desire man's way, it never bears lasting fruit, and it can actually get us in trouble. You say, man, I know God wants me to do this, but we do it our own way, or we do it in our own time. Moses had to trust the timing of God in his life, and so do we. Verse 29, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he He became the father of two sons. Again, Moses thought he was doing the right thing, but it's not done in God's way or in God's time. And so for the next 40 years, Moses is schooled in the desert. He's taught humility. He's taught humility. And can I just say that's a course that every one of us who wants to be used by God needs to go through, right? Because it teaches us to be totally dependent upon God. And it's only at that point that lasting things can be accomplished through our lives. Look at verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the, of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So, get it, 40 years had passed. How old is Moses at this point? He's 80 years old. He's 80 years old, living in the backside of the desert. And it looks like any hope of being used as a deliverer to save God's people, that's gone. With all of his potential, with all of his training, here's Moses. He's merely a shepherd on the backside of the desert. But can I just say that is a perfect training for what God was about to call him to. He was about to call him to, to lead the Hebrews through this very same desert depending on God alone. The bush that was on fire, it was a, a manifestation of God. We call it a theophany, right? Moses is meeting in that place with God. And can I just say when you meet with God, everything changes, right? And, and so here is Stephen and he's trying to explain to these religious rulers in his day, right, those who've put him on trial, that Jesus' earthly life was a manifestation of God, that, that God doesn't limit himself to a temple or a tabernacle to meet with us. And so he's showing from Scripture that he's actually honoring the law while they're ignoring it. Look at verse 34. He says, I, I, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, God says, who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. If I was Moses, I would be like, God, I was already in Egypt <laughs> 40 years ago. I was, I was positioned, I was ready to go. You sent me out here 40 years ago, right? I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, Stephen says, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Stephen is quoting many things right out of the Old Testament. Again, it's evidence that he memorized the word of God. I mean, no wonder he's full of wisdom. His heart and his mind are devoted to the word of God. And these words that he speaks, I think they should be a comfort to the Jews of his day who, again, felt a lot like their forefathers in Egypt. I mean, again, Israel was occupied by the Romans 
They still had some freedom, but they're taxed so heavily. They're forced to do as the Romans called them to do. And so they're looking right now. At this point, they're, they're looking for another Moses. They're looking for another physical deliverer. And, and Stephen is making the point here that the very person who the Hebrews asked, right, who made you ruler and judge, was the same person that God called to be ruler and judge. Now, the connection that the Spirit of God is making with Jesus is so obvious right here, right? Because the rulers rejected Jesus as ruler and redeemer, but he was sent by God to do that very thing. And now he's ascended to the right hand of God to hold that position for all eternity. The council put Stephen on trial, but God really has the council on trial. And understand this, it's only God's judgment that matters in the end, amen? And Stephen continues, verse 36, he says, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, he said this, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This was a great prophecy that the Jews longed to see fulfilled. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It's why they asked John when he came and he's baptizing, right? They said, are, are you Elijah or are you the one like Moses? They're looking for the fulfillment of this prophecy that this great deliverer is going to come and, 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 and take them out of this, this land of captivity or take them out of captivity in that land, right? They, they wanted to see the prophecy fulfilled. The problem was they didn't like the way it was fulfilled. I mean, Jesus came and he did more signs and he did more wonders than Moses ever did. The problem was those signs and wonders were not against Rome. His signs and wonders didn't demonstrate deliverance from Rome, but rather demonstrated a greater deliverance. It is a deliverance from the ultimate enemy who enslaves all of us in bondage to sin. Understand, as blessed an instrument of God as Moses was, he could never change the heart of the Hebrew people. I mean, there was a whole generation that, that died in the wilderness. And Moses says, man, you guys are a stiff-necked people. But here comes Jesus. And his signs and wonders are unsurpassed in all of history. Look at verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Again, they say, you blaspheme Moses. He's saying, no, I understand who Moses was. I understand God gave him the law. But look at verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Stephen wants to drive the point home, and it's this. How the Hebrews treated Moses foreshadowed what these rulers did to Jesus. Because again, Moses was a physical deliverer chosen by God to take the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt into the promised land. But in spite of the miracles, in spite of delivering the very word of God, they refused to obey him. They refused to obey the laws of God, and their hearts turned back again and again to Egypt, to the place where they were in slavery for 400 years. Now understand this. Joseph is a type of Christ, but Moses also is a type of Christ. In other words, he gives us an imagery of who Christ is, right? You want to see how much Jesus and Moses are alike? Check this out. Consider they tried to kill Moses as a baby. They tried to kill Jesus as a baby. 
Moses left his position in the royal court of Pharaoh to step down and to be a deliverer of his people. We know that Jesus left the royal court of heaven and he made himself of no reputation. He poured out his life for us on the cross. Moses was rejected the first time. He was accepted the second time. Jesus was rejected by his people the first time, but according to Zechariah, he will be received and he will be accepted the second time. Moses became a shepherd. We know that Jesus is called the good shepherd. Moses was a mediator of the covenant of the Old Testament, right? Jesus is a mediator of the new covenant. I mean, as you look at Scripture, these, these parallels are just amazing. Again, Moses prophesied that God will raise up a prophet like me, okay? And, and him you're going to hear. The one like Moses that God would raise up from the Jewish people did amazing miracles to show that he was the one that the prophets foretold. Jesus came and he offered to deliver them from their bondage of sin and to, to lead them into the kingdom of God. But they did to Jesus what they did to Moses. They refused to obey. And they not only cast him aside, but they took his life. Why? Because I believe this, that Egypt was still in their hearts. All these years later, Egypt was still in their hearts. In the, in the same way the Hebrews wanted the fish and the garlic and the leeks of Egypt when they were in the desert, right? Here are their descendants, and they want to hold on to their power and their influence. Understand today, Egypt is many different things for many people, but everything that we desire apart from God has one thing in common. The thing we desire is more important to us than our creator. That's idolatry, right? It's more important to us than the one who offers us freedom from enslavement to those desires. Understand today, only Jesus can really open our eyes in this life to see what is of eternal value. Look at verse 40. He says, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Through this message from Stephen, the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction as he does today, even as we read the word, right? It ought to bring conviction to our hearts. Verse 42, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch. He said, you didn't do this. Instead, you began to worship false gods. And the star of your god, Repvan, it was a god that they had taken from Egypt and brought with them, right? The images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, the history of the Hebrews' unfaithfulness to God who led them out of Egypt was a strong reminder of just how sinful they could be. And understand, in this moment, it is the loving patience of God that's giving these people another chance. He's given them in this moment a chance to see their hearts, to look back at their history, and he's warning them about their future. Look at verse 44. Our forefathers had the tent of wilderness, uh, a tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. 
So it was until the day of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. In the past, the place of worship changed from a tent to a temple. And the question is, could it not change again to a temple of living stones? Right? But the wording here reminds them that the tent and the temple are only a, a copy or a picture of the heavenly reality. Verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He's quoting from Isaiah 66, okay, verses 1 and 2. He's saying, God's too big for any building. In fact, the entirety of the earth is simply a footstool for him because he created the universe. Like, how can you make a building that's adequate for God? You can't, right? God must build that building, and that's what he's doing as he builds the church. Understand today, we are now the dwelling place of God. We are the temple, amen? The temple of the Holy Spirit. He resides now in us. Verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people. Stephen's not going to hold back. <laughs> you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, right? Whom you have now betrayed and you murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow, right? As he wraps up his sermon, Stephen makes the connection very clear. He says, just like your forefathers, you guys are resisting the Holy Spirit. And here's the problem. At its core, their hearts are uncircumcised. Now remember, circumcision was an outward sign of the covenant, but that outward sign was supposed to point to an inward act. It wasn't just a, a matter of circumcising the flesh, but it was a matter of allowing God to circumcise or, or, or change the heart. But these men, these, these religious rulers, here they are. They, they could have had sensitive hearts to God. They could have had sensitive hearts to his word, but they would not. They were stiff-necked. It's the same word that Moses uses of the people of God when they're in the midst of the desert. Here they are again insisting on going their own way, and they refuse to listen to Jesus. This is the very thing that they feared when they were coming out of exile in the book of Nehemiah, that they would, that they would turn again, right? That they would resist once again what God is doing. But here they are. They became just like their ancestors when they persecuted and killed the prophets. They killed God's messengers, sent to guide them back to God. Now, this idea of being stiff-necked was as true of them as it was of their ancestors, because they continued what? They continued resisting the Holy Spirit. The message preached by Stephen was perfect for the Jews who rejected Jesus as their Messiah and as their Redeemer, but I gotta tell you what, it's also perfect for us today as well. Maybe you're here today and you say, I don't have a Jewish heritage, but I wanna tell you, we come from the same heritage in one sense, right? And each and every one of us can be stiff-necked. We can be just as idolatrous 
we can be set free from the land of Egypt and still desire the things of Egypt. Egypt so often is, is still in our hearts. We, we can be just as insensitive to all that God has done to redeem us. We too can harden our hearts towards God's forgiveness. We can harden our hearts towards uh, the, what is offered to us in Jesus Christ. We can find ourselves in that place where we love the world more than we love the world's creator, where we can ignore eternal consequences. But I want to remind you today that God loves you and that he gave himself for you. And I want to encourage you, don't be as blind. Don't be as hard-hearted. Don't be as stiff-necked as these religious rulers were. Would you stand with me as we prepare to close? We're going to close with a song of worship, and then we have a young man, Logan, who we're going to dedicate right after that to the Lord. But I want you to take just a moment, and I want you to talk to Jesus right now. I want you to let him speak to your heart. Maybe right now, even in this moment, you need to confess your own stubborn independence from him. Realize, man, I keep trying to do things my own way, God. But because of his love, he keeps coming back to us. And, and ask him. You could ask him today. You can ask him today for forgiveness. You can ask him today for eternal life. I believe he will graciously give that to you if you humbly ask. Maybe you're here today and you've never recognized Jesus for who he is. He's a Messiah. He is the Savior. He is that promised one. He's that one like Moses that came not to deliver us from a, a physical Egypt, but a spiritual Egypt. The Word of God says it's by his stripes that we are healed. Hear me today, the greatest healing that we need is not a physical healing, it's a spiritual healing, amen? We need to be forgiven, we need to be cleansed. You can receive that today if you put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. But if you're here today and you've surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to tell you this, that Stephen is an example for you. He's an example for you, he's an example for me. Here's a man who stepped up to serve but he was also a man of God who had the word of God memorized. He had it hidden in his heart, and so God makes him a hero. He is the very first Christian martyr. You might say, well, I don't know how excited I am, Pastor, about following that example. <laughs> I don't know if I, I want my life to be taken. But understand this, martyr simply means witness. It simply means witness, and there is no higher calling in life than to be a witness of the love and the grace of Jesus. Understand, church, eternity is before us. Eternity is before us. Are you investing in eternity or all, all your treasures right here, right now? Is everything you value something you've brought from Egypt, or is there a lasting value in your relationship with God? When we look at and we understand the love of Jesus, when we understand what he's done for us, when we know that rightly, I just ask, man, how could we ever respond half-heartedly, right? I believe Stephen's life should challenge us to surrender our lives to the life of Christ. When you look at your own heart today, when you look at your own heart's desires, you have to ask, is that desire meaningful in the light of eternity? Stephen preached the gospel knowing this sermon might be his last. And as we're going to see next week, Jesus honored that. In fact, Jesus stood. He stood up to welcome Stephen into eternity as the first martyr. And I believe that's the case for every witness who gives their lives for him. The church today is built upon the blood of martyrs. But may we, as Stephen did, 
when given the opportunity. May we not be stiff-necked, but may our hearts be softened to the Word of God. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you today to let the Holy Spirit soften your heart. Don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't be stiff-necked, but receive the one who was given to us, Jesus Christ. In him, there is salvation. In him, there's forgiveness of sins. In him, there is freedom. Amen? And so as we worship, just take a moment and say, God, soften my heart. Don't allow me to be stiff-necked. Let me see what your Holy Spirit is doing. Amen? Let's worship him together.